The following presentation was recorded at a Faith Builders Colloquy. More information on Faith Builders events at fbep.org. The interaction of God and man. Now when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now these might seem like curious words to start off with when my topic is interpreting the past, the interaction of God with man. After all, history has to do with the observable past, and our subject is describe how God and man has interacted in that past. Nonetheless, Jesus reminds us that the kingdom of God at its very essence is inward, and if it does not happen in our hearts, it happens nowhere else here on this earth. Yet we are so impressed by what we see, and we so much wish to see God do something very spectacular here in our midst. And that is why Jesus warns us not to be deceived by the claims of those who say, look here and look there. Not everything that men claim to be the mighty acts of God are indeed his doing. God gets the blame for a lot of things he has nothing to do with. Nonetheless, we are persons who live in time and space, and God does interact with us in this time and space. And that interaction has found its fullest expression in the Incarnation, as the Apostle John states in his Gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the gl- his glory, the glory of the Father, the only begotten, excuse me, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the Father, full of grace and truth. Bible scholars tell us that the word dwelt here means literally that the word pitched his tent among us. And this is a very homey image. It calls up pictures of Bedouin um, herders staking out their goat hair tents of their wives, tending their cooking fires, of the children watering the flocks. But yet, at the same time, we are reminded that it is also an image of the tabernacle of God which Moses built in the wilderness at God's direction. And in this tabernacle, there was an Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark is very rich with symbolism because hiding the Ark is a veil which reminds us of our own sinfulness and our separation from God. And inside that Ark, there is is nonetheless a reminder that God has not left us to our own devices for there is a pot of ashes of a heifer. And also, on top of that ark, there is a lid, which we call the mercy seat. And the mercy seat and the pot of ashes remind us that with God, there is also forgiveness and cleansing from sin. However, in offering us forgiveness and cleansing from sin, we are also reminded that there is a table of stone in this ark. And that reminds us that when God works with us, he always does it in the context of a covenant in which there are conditions and promises, conditions that we must meet and promises if we do meet them. And finally, inside that ark, there is Aaron's rod in the pot of manna, which point to God's ongoing care and his miraculous intervention on our part. All this, like so much of the cultic elements in the Old Testament points to Christ, 
Just as the goat hair covers the tabernacle, so is Christ clothed in our common humanity. In him, as in the Holy of Holies, dwells the glory of God, yet in this case even more so. For as again as John says, it is the glory of the Father full of grace and truth. Thus the incarnation is the focal point of, our, of God's interaction with man. And Pilgrim Marpeck makes this point very forcibly in his first writing, A Clear and Useful Instruction. And he says, and I quote, The Lord Christ thus becomes a natural man for natural men, in order by the natural the destruction of his nature might be translated again into the supernatural and heavenly nature. Therefore the Lord Christ in all his supernatural miracles permitted the natural and outworking outward things to proceed. After all, he was not here for the benefit of spirits and angels, but for man's sake, who has flesh and blood and natural sensitivity. Thus even to this day, the natural realities must precede in order to win and to hold the natural man. Who will then, by virtue of his natural obedience, undergo his transference, which begins in the restoration of perverted nature, into the supernatural and into Christ's prescribed order, where he will eternally be held? The natural realities must precede in order that the supernatural and natural may exist together. For man is here in physical life until the translation out of the natural life and into, superna and into supernatural is consummated. Now I would like to underscore four points that Marpak makes here. First of all, as human beings, we do have flesh and blood and natural sensitivity. And God is very much aware of that and very condescending to us in the, in the limitations that are, are intrinsic to that reality. Secondly, Christ became a natural man to translate us into the supernatural. And thirdly, in this life, the supernatural and the natural may exist together. They don't always, but they may exist together. And fourthly, it is Christ's outwardness that is the key to understanding how God interacts with us as men and as women. Again, as Pilgrim Marpex says, Whoever presumes to discover the secrets of God or presumes to be taught by God without the outward, that is the exterior or the visible, cast away as did the Jews, the very means by which he could be taught, could learn or discover the divine secrets. For it is precisely the humanity of Christ which is our mediator before the Godhead and not the Godhead before the humanity. I think that is a very important thing to keep in mind. It is Christ, the man, who is our mediator, who stands between us and God. A mediator of like, like um, frailties as we are, of like blood and flesh as we are, yet without sin. Now, so far I have looked at two things. First of all is that the kingdom of God comes not by observation. And the second is that it is through the outward physical, incarnated, visible God-man, that God meets us. Now this might seem to be contradictory, but I would like us all to entertain the reality that much of Christian revelation is paradoxical in nature. We can understand, I believe this paradox of inwardness and visibility is held together in the incarnated Christ. We can understand how this is so if we keep three things in mind. 
humility, holiness, and honesty. And I want to look at these three things and how integral these are to the very nature of the kingdom of God. Humility. When we talk about the kingdom of God, there has always been various expectations as to what that really is and is meant to be. The Jewish expectations of the kingdom of God was that the Messiah would come and he would establish his earthly reign here on earth and he would subdue the Romans and through the Jews he would rule the world. That was their expectation. And it's not hard to figure that out when you read through the Gospels and see what's going on. They're waiting to see if Jesus is really going to do this and there are times in which they almost try to force him to do that. And he steadfastly, unreservedly refused to have anything to do with that understanding of the kingdom of God. In fact, he categorically refused to have anything to do with it when Satan tempted him with that possibility. But nonetheless, there are still those who hold that out. In professing Christianity, at least in the Reformed tradition, there's another understanding of the kingdom of God. And that is that God works with people through two covenants, the covenant of grace and the covenant with the nations. And the covenant of grace is the covenant in which God elects people arbitrarily without anything uh, in relation to what they have done or not have done. He elects them to salvation. And having done so, these elect are to become the agents then by which God implements his covenant with the nations in which they are to gain control of the structures of society, of government, and of of, um, the economy. And through gaining control of those structures, implement God's reign. Usually, this reign is understood as uh, primarily in some truncated version of Old Testament um, ethics and and, um, and social systems and so on, but like I said, it's, it's not normally the whole full-blown thing. One, one good example of that is a book that's fairly popular, I think, in Christian circles, a um, book written by Peter Martin Marshall, Jr. and Dave Manuel, The Light and the Glory, which holds before us this vision of the United States as an elect Christian nation who unfortunately has forgotten its mission in the world and they're hoping through informing them of who we were to help us to become again who we are meant to be. Then we have things like the Christian Coalition and Pat Buchanan's Reform Party and Dr. Dobson and everything like that. In earlier days, we had the whole social gospel movement and so on which was all part and parcel of that. And you have the peace and justice thing and everything like that. All that is basically coming out of a Reformed tradition, whether it's a liberal Reformed tradition or whether it's a conservative, whether it's liberal in its interpretation or conservative, it comes out of a Reformed tradition. Here, earthly power and influence and political pressure and force are brought into play to implement this version of the so-called kingdom of God. Is this how the meek and lowly Jesus riding on a donkey colt or the bruised and crucified Christ on Golgotha brought in his kingdom? No, I don't think so. The kingdom of God does not come by observation, yet it is visible. And how? It, but how is it so? 
I would like you to hear the words of Christian Burkholder, a Mennonite fool minister from the New, New Holland, Pennsylvania, writing in 1792. And this is what he says. Christ has given us in his birth a pattern of true humility. Thither, namely, to his manger, we are to direct our course. Indeed, he has given us in his birth, his doctrine and life, an example of childlike humility. Those who are born of Christ have become partakers of his nature and virtue. Why does Burkholder direct us to Christ's manger? Because we are reminded there that in this manger, which was simply the result that there was no room in the end for Christ, he was born in a lowly place. He was born to lowly people. And the people who came to worship him at first were lowly shepherds. Christ dwells among the meek and the lowly and also the poor. That is one of the reasons why Luke's gospel is so much concerned about the poor. Not that there's any particular virtue uh, intrinsic to that, but God is very much concerned with the meek and the lowly and the poor. And indeed, his gospel was good news to the poor. It was not good news to the rich. It was not good news to those who had power. It was bad news, and that's why they killed him. But to the poor, it was good news. He brought them salvation and help and healing. And he said, I have come to help those who are sick and know that they are sick. But he always comes to those who are lowly and contrite in heart. And the way that he has come and the way that he was in his life and doctrine and pattern are for us. As the Apostle Paul says, how many of you were wealthy? How many of you were intelligent? How many of you were mighty in this world? Not many of you. And that is true. The gospel has always appealed to those who know in reality their true condition. The, the sadness of those who are mighty and powerful and rich and strong in this world is that they do not know how poor they are and how much they need this physician who will heal them and take away the burdens that they have. Burkholder offers to us that same alternate vision of the kingdom of God as did Tilman Van Braal when he compiled that monumental work tracing the history of those defenseless Christians who baptize only upon confession of faith and who suffer and die for the testimony of Christ. I noticed when I was going through Faith Builders Library, you don't have a martyr's mirror. You do have a martyr's mirror? Somebody had it checked out. That's good. They're reading it. Huh? Oh, it's in the other room. I was going to say, well, you, okay, they're using it. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that they are. I was almost going to give you one. Okay. But uh, I thought it was just a, you quote, spoke too quickly. You can use two. All right. Uh, well, they're not that plentiful around my house. So I can just pass them out for anyhow. You know, if you have one, that should be sufficient, you know, just like two coats. Um, by focusing first on the Prince of Martyrs, Van Braal, Jesus Christ, Van Braal draws our attention to an understanding of Christianity that is radically different to what many are suggesting today, as it was in his own day also. In fact, some of Van Braal's concerns are ours too. He was concerned about the rampant materialism 
that was afflicting his own beloved church. And we might also mention a church that was very splintered and mean-spirited to each other. But while they were arguing about things as to how big the rough should be and how to apply the ban and so on, they were at the same time investing funds in the East India Company, Dutch East India Company, which was, was involved in the slave trade. Spiritual lukewarmness and apostasy. He saw all around him. And Van Braal holds before our eyes the example of thousands who sought the heavenly city, not made by hands. And if you read the martyr's mirror, you cannot be helped but, but be struck by the fact that these people walked to their death, marched to it with joy on their lips and songs in their hearts, singing. Why? Not because they were masochists, but because they realized that if they were faithful unto the end, there stood before them an eternal hope. They had a city whose builder and architect was Jesus Christ. But in Van Braal's title, there are two themes that are very important for understanding what the kingdom of God is all about that tie in, I think, to the whole theme of humility. First of all, the kingdom of God is a voluntary kingdom. God has given each of us a free will, and he gives us the privilege to exercise that free will. We can choose to become part of his kingdom, or we can choose not to become part of that freedom, and of that kingdom. And humility demands that as individuals, we recognize, first of all, our own need and our own desperateness and that we voluntarily hand over our lives to Jesus Christ. Humility also asks of us that we allow our fellow man to do the same thing and that we release ourselves from any attempt to control those around us. That is a temptation. As Peter was talking about earlier, it is the temptation that the Gentiles have, the temptation to control other people's lives. We need to release ourselves from that temptation. And we can do so if we put our confidence instead in that light which lightens every man that comes into the world. We must put our confidence in the fact that God has planted his word in every man. He has preached his gospel to the heart of every man. And there is that which is in man which will respond to him. There is that light, Jesus Christ, which lightens every man. And that every person must respond to that. And we are not responsible for how people respond to that. We are only responsible for how we respond to that light which he gives us. Felix Mons wrote, as he was staying in prison right before his execution. Christ bids us none compelling to his glorious throne. He only who is willing, Christ is Lord to own. He is short of heaven who will right faith pursue. With heart make pure repentance, sealed with baptism true. What God has accomplished, he has done. With those people who are voluntarily committed themselves to his rule and to his way. And when that group of people gather together in his name, we can be assured that God is in the midst of them and he is interacting with them. And I think that we should assure ourselves that no, just as he told Elijah, that he was not in the thunder 
He was not in the lightning. He was not in all these spectacular things that people like to make a show of. But he was in that still, small voice. So God is not in all these spectacular things that we see people claiming to be his work, but he is in that quiet place speaking to the hearts of people who will hear him and who will obey his word. And this is Van Braal's understanding of apostolic succession. If you look at, at his history, you, at his compilation of stories and so on, the point that he is trying to make is that he is looking for those people everywhere in every generation down through the centuries who followed this vision of volunteerism and discipleship and commitment to Christ. He was not concerned about whether somebody had the right hands laid on them or not by so on, back and forth, forth and so on. Nor was he concerned like, um, for example, in my, in my home community there is a little church. It's a Mennonite church. One of the many, it's one of the 16 different Mennonite groups we have in our area. The membership of this congregation is, I think, about seven people, and they are the people of God. They are the church of, of Christ. And their church and the other congregations, which I think is probably about a dozen uh, in these days, um, they are God's church. It. That's period. And there's, there's no other church outside of that. But then up the road from there, all oh, let's say about 10 or 12 miles, there's another church. They're a little bigger. Well, they're probably about 60 members. And, th- and they belong to a much bigger group that I think probably has hundreds of congregations across the nation. They themselves, again, are God's church, his visible church. And anybody who belongs to his visible, chur- his visible church will belong to them. Now, they will grant that there are other individual church, I mean, Christians out there, but they are the visible church of Christ, period. That's not what Van Braal was talking about. And that's not what we should be talking about. We should be willing to recognize that wherever God's will is obeyed and his lordship is recognized in the hearts and lives of people, that is his gathered body. The second thing I'd like you to notice is the theme of defenselessness. Or as our ancestors used to talk about the non-resistant gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus and what he did for us and how he procured for us our salvation, did he not do it by suffering and by death and by defenselessness? And that was by no accident. It was not just simply a, it was not just simply, um, something he had to do to make the right sacrifice, though it was that. Don't get me wrong. But it was the only way that he could take care of the sin problem. And it's the only way that we have to live too. Jesus and his suffering and death exhibited to us a pattern of life. Is not, not what Peter tells us in his letter. The question I have to ask, was God interacting with man in Calvin's Geneva when he burnt Servidius at the stake? No, he was not. Was God interacting with man when they had a literal fisticuffs and strong swords over distributing the elements in Calvin's Geneva? 
No, he was not. Was God interacting with man when the Spanish Inquisition stretched heretics so-called on the rack? No, he was not working there. And I think the weakest can say very categorically that those who do not act like Christ, he is not there in their midst. Those who know Christ, who interact with him, will live like him. Their lives will be like Christ. I think, again, of this whole thing about a Christian America. Invariably, when people talk about a Christian America, they always go back to Plymouth or to Boston, uh, to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which the Puritans established, as the example of a holy commonwealth. And of course, if you read those documents, and they're very stirring at times, and you can somewhat appreciate the nobility of vision and so on that they had, the desire to please God and everything like that, you can sort of appreciate that. You can sort of um, um, grant that, that there, was, there was a desire there. But remember what the Apostle Paul said about the Jews. They had a zeal, but that zeal was not after knowledge. And I would maintain that the Puritans did not know the lowly, meek, defenseless Jesus. If they did, they would not have moved in, taken over the land from the Indians, decimated hundreds of them in wars. They would not have have whipped dissenters and heretics through the street. They would not have hung Quakers or anything like that. And furthermore, I would like us to remember that all the liberal theology that has ever come in this country comes from New England, that bastion of Puritanism. And within a couple of generations, unsoundness in doctrine concerning who Jesus was, concerning the very nature of God, concerning salvation and so on, was rampant in New England. It was the, it was the home of Unitarianism. And if you want to see an example of it, go to Harvard College which was supposed to train Puritan preachers, and now I think they would laugh you out of town if you even mentioned the fact that Jesus was your Lord. God does not bless those things which are not according to his will. They might work for a little while. They might even work for a while, and they might even be for a while impressive. But be assured, God is not mocked The day of reckoning comes for us all. There is a payday if we do not follow the meek and lowly Christ. I'd like to give you, in contrast, another example. Quaker, Pennsylvania. Here, a holy experiment where William Penn said, Come everybody, whatever you believe, you can come here and you can live in peace with each other. Follow the dictates of your own heart and your own conscience as long as you behave yourself, and you will be able to live here. Our ancestors came, your ancestors, my ancestors, which in my case includes German Catholics and Scotch-Irish Presbyterians and English Anglicans, 
they came. And they lived quietly with each other. In fact, I have a feeling that some of my ancestors, Roman Catholic Eckenrose, who settled in southeastern Pennsylvania in the Valley area, right next to Mennonites, worked together to build the Roman Catholic Church there. The Mennonites helped them do that. Now, that's quite a different thing. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that I'd go around helping build Roman Catholic churches or meeting houses. But what I am saying is there's a different attitude, a different spirit that this place was founded upon that has, in the end, stood the test of time. There is no more pious state in the whole country than Pennsylvania. Now, I'm not saying that everything in Pennsylvania is great. Don't mind mind me wrong. But what I'm saying is that I think you could number it, and per capita, the number of professing Christians for whom their, 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 their religion means something to them in reality is much higher than, I think, any place else in the country, except maybe Holmes County, Ohio. And certainly more so than England, New England. The next thing I'd like us to note is that humility can be a means of prophetic critique. Humility is not just simply, well, I don't know what's going on. I don't know anything. Uh, When I was teaching school, we used to have this father who came in and he would spend the first, that we had fathers come in and give devotions and so on. And he would spend the first five minutes telling us how lowly and humble and, and unworthy and, and poor a person he was to do this job. And after he was finished, you didn't leave him. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. Okay. Now, I think that there is indeed the reality that as humble people, we should not put ourselves first. We should always prefer others ahead of ourselves. That when we are, we are slighted or we think we're slighted, that we should not take it as a slight, but that we should recognize that we are, are indeed lowly people. But humility can be a powerful means by which to critique evil. And I was struck by this when I was reading through the record book of, an, of a Mennonite deacon in our area in the 1870s, and he was commenting on the, on the situation that he was observing. He says this. This is quite a lengthy quote, but it's so rich I thought it was worth it. The people have climbed very high in their high-mindedness. This is in 1874. Not only in their clothes, but also in their farming, and their planting, their driving, their learning, as well as in their Christianity, and their make-nothing spirit. Has that, I think, let me see if I can get the German right. It is Geist. Is that right, Peter? Okay. Um, which I thought was a really neat way of talking about it. It doesn't matter spirit. Has gone so far that nothing was high-minded anymore with them. With dancing, with playing, with music, with fiddles, and all manner of costly clothes that required three times as much cloth as what they used to. And he wasn't talking about having long skirts either. They carry all manner of things in their hair to look nice. 
Women wore false hair on their heads in a variety of ways. Some looked absolutely off, absolutely fearsome with their hair. Then besides that, they carried ornaments on their heads with all kinds of feathers from bird wings and bird tails and even entire birds as well as plumes and things like that. They made false breasts for themselves to wear, false hips, false backs, so that their way of walking was disgusting and their shape distorted and horrible to look at. They were hardly shaped like human beings anymore. Men also dressed up their hair, but in a different way. Some had long hair on their heads. Others had it shorn off so short that it looked almost bald. There is nothing new under the sun, in case you were wondering. <laughs> their hair on their faces, they let grow in many ways, so it was shocking to look at, and it became revolting to have to eat with them. Yet it was very popular with the world. In the summer, the people spent much money on their picnics and celebrations. They baked all sorts of expensive cakes and made expensive drinks. They held Sunday school gatherings and met as secret societies that were very popular at the time. The preachers and the old people went along with these gatherings and spent all day eating and drinking in the woods, dancing and playing with music and fiddles. The high-minded and reckless spirit was everywhere because wages were high and money in abundance, so the poor indulged in high-mindedness almost more than the rich. They went as far as they could go. Do you see how humility can be a critique of sin? Later on in 1876, he has a similar, has a similar um, um, passage in his record book. And one of the things he talks about, he says, in January of 1876, there was a great revival throughout the whole land. And you read about that, there was. Okay. And he said people were, were, were um, turning to God and they were repenting and everything like that. And there were, and there were meetings in the churches in the big cities and so on. But he said it did no good. It didn't mean anything. Because the people were still high-minded. They were still proud. And when the Centennial Exposition came, that great celebration of America's uh, achievement, they all went flocking to it anyhow. What kind of religion is it that allows pride to continue? And that's been the question. And sometimes it gets muddied up by picayuneness and stuff like that. But that is really the question that is behind all of our concern and everything that we've ever said and our ancestors have ever talked about and even the most hidebound legalist in the church. Underneath all that, it might be warped, but there is this understanding that repentance and being a Christian has to mean something in how you live. You can't repent and go on living the way you have. And you can't be proud because God does not dwell with the proud, but he dwells with those who are a meek and contrite spirit. So, that's 1874, 1876. What about 1999? What about the Toronto Blessing? What about the Pensacola Revivals? What about all these great, quote-unquote, mighty acts of God? Is God interacting with men there? Yes and no. Yes, because God is very condescending in how he relates to us. 
We would like to think that God somehow or another has it all very nicely spelled out, that it fits exactly how Daniel Kaufman said it in the doctrines of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And it probably pretty much well does, to some degree. But one of the things that I am struck by is that God is not limited by our understandings or by our theologies or by our clever arguments. When you listen to, for example, to the arguments of those persons that I was talking about, you know, the little group of about half a dozen, and then the little group of about 60, you know, you listen to them long enough and it makes sense. It really does. So it does. But that doesn't mean it's so. So it doesn't. It just doesn't mean so. And one of the things that we have to recognize is that that God is not limited by men as to how he wants to work. And so, yes, I believe that probably down there in Pensacola, some people got genuinely converted and met God, despite it all. And I'll tell you why I believe that. Because I can look in my own experience and know that it didn't work out like a Rod and Staff storybook. I know that. Okay? And it just doesn't always. And God is not limited to the plots in a Rod and Staff storybook, for which we all should be very thankful. But nonetheless, he does have an idea, which I think is sort of what the Rod and Staff storybook is trying to get to. I think. Not always sure. But I think that's what they're trying to get to. He does have an idea to which he is calling us to. All right? But he is very inventive about how he gets us there. And we should let him be just as inventive as he wants to be. But that takes me then to what he wants us to get to, and that is holiness. Without holiness, no man will see God. And we can just be assured of that. Okay? That without being a holy person, without being a holy people, we will not meet God. Now, when we talk about holiness, we can talk about inward holiness, and we can talk about outward holiness, and so on. But as an old man, Mennonite man, in our area said back in the 1880s, that he believed if the heart is right, the coat and the hat will be right too. And I think he was right. That was Lena's great-great-great-great-grandfather, by the way. He was right. Now, I don't know if I would necessarily wear the same coat and hat. He did. But he is right. That if our heart is right, the outward will be right too. We cannot go around claiming that we are inwardly humble and outwardly acting proud, either in our in our outward appearance, and our manner, or anything like that. But when we talk about inward holiness, we are talking about the nature of the new birth. What does it truly mean to be born again? What is regeneration? And people can focus on the experience and how one gets there and all that kind of stuff. And again, I, I would just simply say that I think we should, we should avoid trying to put 
God into some kind of box that he has to get people converted in a particular kind of way. In the work that I'm doing right now, I'm working on a history of the Mennonite churches in my community. And in the 1700s and around about, actually around 1800, uh, turn of the century there, there was a, a religious movement, a spiritual movement that swept through this area and it swept a lot of Mennonites into it. It was called the German Awakening, sometimes the Otterbein movement, and it resulted in a number of different groups like the, uh, the um, United Brethren and also the River Brethren. But this movement, I think, came as a result of the fact of a, of a, very, a very keen spiritual need that people sensed in their lives. And this movement came and offered to the to people a, a sense or at least a knowledge or an experience that gave them some satisfaction that they were right with God and they had a relationship with him. But in doing that, what they focused in on was a particular type of new birth experience. And the litmus test of whether one had the new birth or not depended on whether or not you had this particular crisis new birth experience. And, of course, when you deal with very spiritually sensitive people who are concerned about whether or not they're right with God and so on, and you plug away at this whole thing as to whether or not they've had this experience, that can indeed produce a great deal of spiritual angst. And this is what happened. And a lot of people responded. And I think that a lot of people genuinely got converted. In fact, the River Brethren came out of that. So they did. But um, I would like to maintain that it is not the nature of the experience or the particular kind of experience that we have to have. Now, we do have to have an experience with God. Don't get me wrong. We do have to meet God. So we do. And that that meeting has to be for real. But Christian Burkholder, who wrote his Honorate in 1792's Address to the Youth, was specifically addressing this whole problem. What really is the new birth? And I'm going to read you an excerpt of how he describes it. He says, the new birth is a change in heart, where we are converted from pride to humility, from inconstance to chastity, from hatred to love, from covetousness to liberality, from the habit of lying and cheating to truth and honesty. He is thus transformed from darkness into light, rescued from the power of Satan and converted to God. That is what it means to produce the fruits meet for repentance. Okay? The new birth is a change of heart where there is an actual infused righteousness where we are made a new creature and we walk after Christ. And there's a change in how we live and how we think and how we are. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 12. He says that we are to not be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed. And that term transformed is the same word as conversion. We are to be converted by the renewing of our mind. 
And that conversion process is a lifelong process in which we are continually being converted. Our mind is continually being renewed. It has a beginning, but it always has to continue on until the very end of our lives, until we are renewed more and more after the image of Christ. Jesus did say, by your fruits you shall know them. And most professing Christianity has been working over time to prove that that really isn't the case, that you don't have to produce the fruits meet for repentance. And this, I think, is where the congregation of God and the visibility comes in. Remember that Jesus refers to us, to the congregation of God's people, as the body of Christ. They are an actual, let's say, little I incarnation of Christ, a physical expression of Jesus Christ. And that is where the visibility comes in, where they demonstrate to the world the character of Jesus Christ, not by taking over the powers of this world, but by being together a corporate expression of who Jesus is. That is how the kingdom comes, not by observation, not see here and see there, but by incarnated presence, a physical presence here on this earth. Okay, the, my third point, which is short, honesty. I am a historian. People ask me sometimes, oh, I hear you're a history buff. Well, that's a little bit like going up to a farmer and saying, oh, I hear that you uh, have a few cows you take care of. You know, um, but I'm supposed to be humble and I say, yes, I am. All right. Um, but I am a historian. Um, and one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, that what I'm working on, what my, it's my work right now, is I'm writing a history of the Mennonites in Franklin County, Pennsylvania, and Washington County, Maryland, which, and just in case you are not aware of, is really the center of the universe. <laughs> Okay? Just ask anybody who lives there. They'll tell you that. All right? But one of the things that I have become keenly aware of as I work through this project, as I read the sources, and I try to figure them out, and sometimes it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle for which, first of all, you have no picture to go by, and about... 75% of the pieces are missing, and you're, try you're supposed to make sense of it. Sometimes that's what you're doing. But one of the things that I have, one of the things I have come keenly aware of is that among these frail, weak people, these Mennonites in the Washington Franklin area, who scrapped, in fact, most of the, most of the stuff I know about them has to do with their scrapping because they seemed to have produced uh, material and documents when they were upset with each other. So I have to keep that in mind, too, that there's something a little skewed about the record. Okay, Because why would you write to a bishop in Lancaster County if everything's going okay? Well, you wouldn't. Okay, But you only do it if you think there's problems or you want to complain. All right? So the record's a little bit skewed. But nonetheless, what I find interesting about this whole story 
And that is part of the story, and it has to be told. And people would like you to think, well, then no, you don't need to tell that. You know, you shouldn't mention that this bishop, back in the mid-19th century, had long white hair, and he smoked a pipe. Don't say that, please. He had long white hair, and he smoked a pipe. Now, I don't have to tell you everything that happened, so I don't. In fact, as time gets a little closer, I'm going to get vague. I, I, I know that. <laughs> Reminds me, when I was um, at church one time, they had confessions. I was right at council meeting. And they, and this wasn't my church. We don't do things like this. But uh, we, I was at this church. And I was just visiting. They had council meeting. And the bishop got up and he read off a, uh, a string of names. They're all a bunch of boys. And then he said that uh, they've confessed to inappropriate activities. Uh, looked. Oh, now what was that? Well, I asked. And, and it was a very simple thing. They had gone off somewhere and they had looked at some movies that they shouldn't have not looked at. They were naughty. Um, and I know in our area, um, we had a euphemism. We talked about social sin. Okay, and everybody, I think, pretty well knew what it was. There's that kind of, of thing that goes on, and I compare that. You know what? You know it. Um, it's very interesting. We we talk about things like that, but then if you go to the Old Testament and you read about David, there's no euphemisms being used. It's clear. It's direct. It's straightforward. We see David with all his warts. And I would really be kind of curious uh, what would happen if somehow or another you could, could disguise First um, and Second Samuel as a separate book and pass it through a school uh, board library review committee if it would pass. You know, change the names and situation and everything like that. But see, what happens here is, is that, that the scriptures deal honestly, forthrightly with reality. They're for real. And we need to deal honestly and forthrightly with reality and call what is, is right. One of the other things that we need to avoid is the, is the temptation of idealization. For example, we all know what an Anabaptist is, don't we? An Anabaptist is somebody who agrees with me. That is what an Anabaptist is, right, Milo? It's somebody who agrees with me. And we know that we are the Anabaptists, we are the descendants of the Anabaptists, and what we believe is what they believed, and so don't confuse us with the facts. After all, we have read John Horsch's Mennonites in Europe. Or if we didn't get that far, we've read Swiss Anabaptist, uh, so we have. Well, we have to deal honestly with our heritage. We have to recognize that Munster is just as much part of our heritage as Minnow Simons is. That is the reality. If we, want to, if we want to tack on Luther's support of Philip of Hesse's bigamy on Luther, if we want to make that one stick, we have to, we have to honestly accept that Munster is the skeleton in the closet. It is. They were Anabaptist. There is no such thing as normative Anabaptism. There's no idealized Anabaptism that we can say these people were and these people weren't. 
Okay? We have to deal with historical reality and acknowledge that they didn't all do everything right. Or as I heard one historian say, they weren't all sweet-natured people either. In fact, you can read their sources. Read the Hutterite Chronicle. Read in between the lines and remember who's writing it. The Hutterites are, not the Philippites. But you can find some interesting things there. So you can. And then, of course, there are other things that we idealize, but we idealize them the other way. Pietism, for, for instance. We all know what's pietism. It's something we aren't, and we better not be that, because that's awful. Okay? And it comes from reading Robert Freeman's book, Men I Piety Through the Centuries, which is just a dreary, boring book, and nobody reads past the first chapter, but they do pick up the idea that Anabaptism is good and Pietism is bad, and so whatever is good is Anabaptism and whatever is bad is Pietism. Okay? Okay, then you, you read that, you hear that. Okay? Then, then, we, then we open our hymnals, and we go around and we sing this. God himself is with us. Let us all adore him, and with all appear before him. God is here within us. Soul in silence fear him. Humbly, fervently draw near him. Now his own, who have known, God in worship lowly, yield their spirits wholly. You going to cut that one out of your hymnal? You going to cut out Jesus, lover of my soul, earnestly, Fondly, earnestly longing. You're going to cut that one out? Then you better, if, you, if you're really against pietism, you better cut them out. So you did. Actually, Freeman's picture of pietism is a caricature. It's not honest. It's not true. And in reality, we have to accept the fact that the problems we have are those of our own making and not of pietism's. There is no profit in preaching against heart religion. But you can insist, like Christian Hurst did, that where the heart is right, the coat and the hat will be right also. But I'm thankful that really we Anabaptists are pietists. I'm glad that there was an Amishman in Kentucky who republished Arndt's um, uh, True Christianity in German and advertise it in the budget and says it's good reading for ministers because he was right. It is good reading for ministers. And I'm glad that the Amish used the prayer book Lutzgardlin, that pure, unadulterated pietism. It's good for them. Heart religion is good for you. Isn't it, Milo? Okay. Remember what I said. If the kingdom of God is not in us, in our hearts, it is nowhere to be. And a for a pure outward form of religion is a sorry excuse for Christianity. And there are examples of that plenty that passes for, quote-unquote, anabaptism. And that's not what it was. You read their writings, and you can feel the burning zeal and love and, and heartwarmness that they had for Jesus. But nonetheless, there are some things we should be aware of. I like an image, or at least I should say a description, 
that I read some time ago by Dale Stouffer, a Brethren historian who has done some very, very good work on the beginnings of the, of the Brethren. But he talks about three pieties. He talks about a spirit piety and a word piety. And he acknowledges that the pietists, even though they were very strongly oriented toward the biblicist, to the Bible, had a tendency to be have a spirit-emphasized piety. On the other hand, by the time that the pietists came around, many of the Anabaptists had more of a word-centered piety. And sometimes we put these in opposition to each other. And we say, um, what we need to do is balance this out. We need to balance the word and the spirit. That's not so. We don't need a little bit more spirit and a little bit more word. We need all the word and all the spirit we can possibly get. So we do. But the key to it is to have a Christ-centered piety. Because Christ is the measuring stone. And we can put Christ over here in the balance and everything else over here. And we need to figure out not to take a little bit of Christ away, but to see whether or not what we have measures up to Jesus Christ. If we have a Christ-centered piety, the spirit and the word will be in their proper places. The last thing I want to mention is the truth is in the nuances. And we so very much like to talk in ways that are not nuances, nuanced. We like to talk in black and white categories. We like to talk about the drift. And the reason for everything that happened was because of the drift. You know what the drift is? Okay. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. The stories that are behind it are a little bit more complicated. Why do some people go one way and other people go the other way? What happens? Was it just simply because of the drift? Or was it because some old conservative was mean to me one day? And if that's what it's all about, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or there was this person who was kind to me and showed me the way. And this is the reason why I responded. And there are all kinds of stories that interlock and interface with each other. And the truth is in the nuances. Finally, what we should remember in looking at the whole question of honesty. Balthazar Hubmeyer said, truth is unkillable. And we cannot destroy the truth. It might be suppressed. It might be pressed down. But we cannot suppress. We cannot destroy it. The kingdom of God is within you. But yet we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This paradox can be held together if we understand that it is done so in the incarnated Christ who will teach us to be humble, who will help us to walk in holiness and in honesty before him and before each other. For the most current Faith Builders recordings, visit christianlearning.org. And for more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.